Hi, welcome back to Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Hello, hello. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here to talk about this section in Exodus. It's just packed full of symbolism. It's yeah. one of my favorite areas. I call it the Exodus cycle. Yeah. We left off with the Passover. Yeah. And now we're going into... We'll try to do it at least through up the to namesake. Sinai. Yeah, yeah, the namesake of the chapter, so the book is starting here. Yeah. So tell me what's going on historically. We, we just... Well, as they leave Egypt, the Lord mentions, I think it's actually in Exodus 13, where he says that he led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. That's verse 18 in, in chapter 13. So instead of going straight up to the promised land, you know, they could have been there in a matter of, of weeks... He takes them back because the Lord had asked Moses, bring the children of Israel back here to this holy sacred mountain, this Mount Sinai or whatever we want to call it, Horeb. It has different names in the scriptures and different locations are now claimed to be that same place. But bring the people back here that I can sanctify them. And I just love this beautiful imagery that the children of Israel had been in Egypt, representing the earth, working for the Pharaoh and their slaves to Pharaoh. And then they have been bought, redeemed by Jehovah, gone through the 10 plagues, gone through the killing of the firstborn. And now they're having this opportunity to go and enter into the Lord's presence and become his servants and choosing to build his treasure cities instead of Pharaoh's treasure cities. And their servitude changes from horrific environment to a celestial environment. But of course, in the process of moving from one to the other, they go through this period of purification and it's difficult and it's hard and they they don't like serving God because it's, it requires the sacrifice still. And they want to go back to the flesh pots and it's really quite symbolic, not only of the Savior in all of these things, but in our own lives, in the plan of salvation, in, in what earth life's all about. Right. It's, it's a terrific chapter, uh, book of Exodus to find symbolisms to liken unto ourselves. Yeah. So 14 starts out with the famous miracle of the Red Sea. Oh, isn't that fabulous? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the books that I read in, in preparation for learning the Old Testament better years ago was a book called The Bible is History. And they were suggesting that maybe it's the Reed Sea rather than the Red Sea. The Red Sea seems too big. But all of this is after the Suez Canal. And those people that look at the geography prior to the Suez Canal suggest that the Red Sea and the Bitter Lakes and Lake Bala were all connected. And they would have been a little further north. But to me, that's not as important as the messages that are given. And also Nephi, I think it's in First Nephi 17, as well as in Doctrine and Covenants section 8, refer to the Red Sea. Is in section 8 where the Lord says, I will talk to you in your heart and your mind, just like I talked to Moses. You know, this is the same little still small voice that I'm going to be using is how Moses crossed the Red Sea. You know, that image is so beautifully reminded in the Restoration as well. But the travel time has been hotly debated. Josephus says it took five days journey before they get down to the Red Sea. But even though the numbers are tricky, it sounds as if in the scriptures that we've got like a million or two million people here. Right. Whatever the numbers are, I, I don't want to make any estimates on that. This was a miracle of miracles and beautifully symbolic of opening up a cleansing, a walking through the water, being immersed in the water. It's just baptism at its best is walking through the Red Sea. 
And I feel like whenever I call upon the Lord and in my mind or in my voice, remember this miracle, these these miracles of walking through the Red Sea, I feel like my faith is strengthened. Yeah, it's a unique miracle. It's, it's one of the miracles referenced in, in all the standard works. So you mentioned Doctrine and Covenants. Nephi yeah. uses yeah. it to kind of convince his brothers for another miracle, right, and getting the plates. And then obviously Paul mentions it as well as sort of a Yes, in 1 Corinthians faith. chapter yeah. 10. You're yeah. right. And Paul's the one who says, let's look at all these things that are happening to the children of Israel as types of the Savior and uh, types for ourselves. And let's look at them in a higher light. And that's helpful as he says the their lives are become a schoolmaster. But this chapter 14 also surprises me that the Pharaoh still comes to chase them. I just... Yeah. After wow. after everything we talked about last week, right? Yeah. You know, all the things that happened. He he still wants to chase them. And I really appreciate the Joseph Smith translation reminding us that it is the Pharaoh who is hardening his own heart. Our God would never try to damn a people. The idea of that Calvinistic idea that Augustine actually brought up, this depravity of man, is is false. But, you know, it's interesting to read some of the other extra-biblical texts after of course, the children of Israel brought through the Red Sea. The Lord keeps the water separated until the armies of the Egyptians are actually in the submerged, and then the waters are allowed to go through and they're drawn. In these extra biblical texts like the book of Jasher, it says that many of the weapons of the Egyptians come ashore and that the next morning, the children of Israel run down and they gather up these weapons of war and then they have some of the Egyptian armor, whether they're bow and arrow or daggers or whatever they were, that the things that grew ashore, they're able to use later on um, when they need to defend themselves. Yeah, there's extra insights from from those extra texts. So so what happens after? So well, 15, 16? Yeah, I just want to read this one verse 13, though. Don't you just love this? He says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That can be a mantra for all of our lives every day when we feel like there's enemies behind and there's impossibilities in front of us, when we feel like the Lord is putting us in a position or life is putting us in a position where it's a no-win. I feel if we can fall on our knees or stand and bow our heads to follow this counsel, to see the salvation of the Lord, we can always find it. There is always a way out. I just really feel powerfully that we never can have to think there's no other way. With our Savior, Jesus Christ, atoning sacrifice in our behalf, there's always a way. But I'm happy to move ahead now. I just wanted to do that verse 13. It's that, just yeah. so beautiful. Thank but you. I also feel like, you know, when next, the days after this, the Lord is giving Israel just a short period of time of peace, you know, a week or two of peace to start their journey. Of course, that doesn't last, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, chapter 15, though, is when they're rejoicing, and that's such a happy time to hear the prophet's beautiful, beautiful sanctifying prayer and call of gratitude to the Lord, and then to imagine the, what it must have looked like to see Miriam and other women dancing and using their timbrels, whatever instrument that <laughs> meant in our King James. It's just beautiful in chapter 15. That's that's fifteen twenty. Miriam is called a prophetess there. And I think it's our first reference to a prophetess in Scripture, but maybe I'm remembering wrong. It's another reference to a prophetess. I certainly felt like Rebecca received the gift of prophecy. Yeah, definitely. She, you know, we talked about it before, the hand that she had in the covenant of Abraham. But unfortunately, 
they get thirsty again. They get thirsty. <laughs> water is always the issue. There's only one issue in the Old Testament. Water, water, water. It's a big deal down there. Oh, yeah. Especially in the Sinai Peninsula. Yeah. So they get to, I guess that's what, verse 34 in chapter 15, where they get to Mara. And you know, I, no matter how many people it was, even if it's only 2,000 instead of 2 million, after you've been walking and walking and walking and you set up camp and there's no water, you know, oh, this just must have been so frustrating for them. But I guess the problem here at Mara is the water was bitter. So there was a source, some sort of an oasis, uh, but it's it's bitter. It's not. And I mentioned that book on uh, the Bible is history. They have found water in that region that still has sulfurous smells. And, the you know, there's terrible sort of springs that are not pure, pure water. So you mentioned the Exodus cycle. For me, this is kind of when it starts. Oh, definitely. Really again. Yeah, in verse two, they start murmuring, right? Yeah, they start murmuring. And then how does the Lord purify this bitter water? But with a beautiful symbol of his son by putting in the wood, the rod, the tree. And Christ is hung on a tree, and he is the one that can change the bitterness of death and the bitterness of life and the bitterness of their water into a purified water. It has nothing to do with Moses or the tree. It's just this symbolism that brings about this everlasting water. And in fact, in our short little section here, we have three water episodes. It's sort of amazing. They've come through the Red Sea and then this bitter water. And then at the end of chapter 15, do you remember the 12 wells Yeah. and the 70 palm trees? Beautiful imagery here for the living water that Christ can supply to the 12 tribes of Israel and that the trees bearing fruit are the hope of the 70 elders who were leading along beside Moses at this time. You know, just, just beautiful symbols there in chapter 15. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking in 16 now. because ah, the, the, the manna. The, yeah, this theme of, you know, my mind is on, on what are the symbols of Christ is. And when you have that lens and you read these few chapters here, they're everywhere. Yeah. We're just even beginning to cover this in this yeah. Exodus. Especially with manna being our Savior's choice in his sermon in Capernaum in John chapters 5 and 6 as I am the bread that came down from heaven. Right. I am the bread of life. But unfortunately, the people keep wanting to go back to Egypt. You know, spiritually, they're so immature. They just murmur and they lack this trust in God. Even. And I guess we're no different at times in our lives where we murmur and complain rather than realize. But the story of the manna is so fascinating to me that the Lord chose to teach them this way. You've got to get up early. You've got to do hard work. And you've got to obey me. It's going to grow maggots if you don't do it right. If you get greedy, it's not going to work. And the law of the Sabbath. I just love the way this is instituted. I will provide for you. And you may think you have to work every day, but trust me, trust me, I will provide for you. I will give you a double portion if you are willing to covenant with me. It seems to cover both sides of faith for me. You know, so there's this faith of like, things will work out, you know, fear not, yes. hold your peace, right? And be yes. patient. And there's this sometimes this difficulty, especially for like, you know, ambitious, motivated people just to stay, right? And, and wait on the Lord. And then there's the other part of the other six days of the week, you know, you got to get up and work. Yes. And that's a different kind of faith. And it's incredibly valuable and important to have both, both, I think. I love that. I'm glad you brought that out, John. And just physically, they're asked to collect this. They use these words, omers and things like that. It's about a half gallon. So think of a half gallon of milk or 2.2 liters sure. that they have to gather every day. And if it's the size of a coriander seed, 
that's a lot of gathering before it melts with the hoarfrost, you know, before it gets the heat of the day. But it reminds me later in the book of Deuteronomy where the Lord says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And I can't think that as they're out there gathering for 40 years every morning their supplies, that they didn't know that this is a miracle, that every day, and I hope that I can be better this week at least of remembering every bite that I partake and every glass of water that I drink is a miracle that God has provided for me, and I need to rely on His Word more so than His food that He's provided. Yeah, you, you bring up a really good point, because a couple things stuck out in, in my reading of this. One is, why are they murmuring? Is there is there, is there a better way to, to let the Lord know what I need? <laughs> and if there is, what what's the blessings of doing it that way, you know, humbling myself, or as it were, well, versus I look at the being Book spiritually of mature, right? Like, yeah, look yeah. at the Book of Mormon. You've got the murmurers. And then you've got the people that say, there's a problem. I am hungry. I'm going to go make a bow, an arrow, and I'm going to go to my dad. I'm going to go to the prophet, the patriarch, and say, where can I go? Let's pray about this. Where can I go? So going before the Lord and saying, I'm in pain. I hurt. Life is hard right now. What can I do? I'm going to move forward the best I can, but how can I do it? It's empowering to move forward with faith. It's it's yeah. it's so much more hope. And what their problem was, I see, is they're constantly going back to Egypt. Yes. They're constantly saying life would have been better. Yeah, that's such an odd thing to, to think about. At least but murmuring to me is a lack of faith. Murmuring to me is a lack of trusting in our Savior's plan. But the plan is that we're going to have hardships. You know, the plan is we've got the thorns. I forgot to mention that the wilderness of sin is where they are. And the word sin is King James, but in Hebrew, it's also the wilderness of thorns, which takes us back to the Garden of Eden when Adam is told, you're going out to earth and you're going to have thorns and thistles. And I think it's not coincidental that the name of the area where they are is the wilderness of thorns when part of this is coming to pass. This is part of earth life. This is the expectant. But, you know, the Lord doesn't just give them the manna either. He gives them the quail sometimes, too. That's also chapter 16, where those animals come on a migratory flight path or something and lay down. It reminds me of the seagulls at the time of the saints planting their crops in Salt Lake Valley, where the Lord sent them to save the day. And here these quails are giving their life to preserve Israel. Yeah. I'm looking at verse 12 and 16, you know, starting in the middle of the verse, at even ye shall eat flesh. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You know, reading before and after and, and so on. This is just blatantly for me the, the sacrament symbolism. Oh, right? beautiful. Yes. Um, you know, this is kind of how I feel, you know, during the sacrament. This is, you should eat the flesh. This is just so, it's not even. It's to <laughs> it's represent the stretch. flesh and Christ yeah. is the bread. No, it's not a, that at all, but it's it's beautiful. And that may be one of those things that Paul reminds us too. When it's interesting in Christ's Gospels, where he, John, where he's talking about, I am the bread of heaven. I want you to eat my flesh, which was so offensive to the Jews. And yet I love you tying the quails in there as well, because that's exactly the image that Christ asked us to use. You know, absorb everything about me. I want you to internalize 
my life, my example, my teachings, my ordinances. I'm so I, glad I you I love did what that. you said about the daily miracle because it takes a minute to think. And going back to the murmuring question. Yeah, yeah. What's missing there, I think, you know, for the people of Israel and in my life as well, is taking them a moment to think about where all this comes from. It's just this daily oh, miracle. This you daily to, miracle. You have to look at it. Look for the miracles of God daily. It just adds so much more richness to your life and focus and hope and, oh, I totally agree. Look for the daily miracles. And as we step back and look at this again from this 40 years of purification, we start off with the Passover, which our Savior becomes the Lamb of God, and then the sanctity of the firstborn with Christ as the firstborn, then the pillar and the fire as Christ saying, I am the light and I am the way. And we follow the pillar, we follow the cloud by day, which is following our Savior, you know. And then, of course, the baptism with the Red Sea and the purification of the bitter waters and Christ's atonement is going to purify us through these leadership of the apostles and the 70 with the wells and the palms. But then this manna being the sacrament just carries this image along beautifully because Christ is the bread. And even though we have quail here, we get water in chapter 17, right. don't we? Right. Well, we've already had water being purified, but I use using that as a symbol of the atonement um, in my mind. But there's lots of water stories. But the hitting the water from the rock is another beautiful example in chapter 17 of Christ as this living water. And Christ also is our rock. He says, I am the rock upon which you are built. So do you want to move ahead to 17? Is there anything yeah, else you want yeah. to talk about no, that's, 15? that's a perfect segue. I was, I was exactly thinking that, you know, 16 being kind of the bread, right at the beginning of 17. And we're not we're yet to, to day though. 50. We're, we're <laughs> still in that weeks, those weeks period of time. We're still in this wilderness of sin or the wilderness of thorns. And we have this riffidum. I guess it's verse 8 is the first reference to a battle. But before that, which verse is the hitting the rock? Let's see. Verse three is when they're murmuring, thirsting for water. Yeah. And then Moses always goes before the Lord and asks. And I thought, oh, I've got to start asking before I do the murmuring. You know, before I start complaining, let me just get on my knees. I love it. And this father-in-law, his father-in-law, Jethro, doesn't come until later. But in 17, I was on the wrong page, sorry. Verse five has this beautiful image of our Savior just gushing out. And he uses the same image, of course, of the woman at the well, you know, everlasting water and life. It's hard to think of it sometimes when we're just partaking of the small cup because we often think of the blood, but it's still a lovely image of our Savior providing the sustenance of life through the water. The other image that is just powerful as we look at this rock is that something that looks hard and the last thing you would ever consider as a source of water, our Savior can change. And I hope with all of us, if we ever have hard hearts as rocks or whatever, just use this analogy to allow the Savior in, allow the Savior in, and we will be able to produce something as beautiful as living water. Yeah, the thing that I think of on top of mind is, you know, building on this rock, if, if you see this rock as a symbol, and I am the living water, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the Savior, I think, very intentionally... Uses these same uses images these from same the images. children of Israel. Amen. Yeah. Amen. 100% agree. And, you know, with that lens, how the Lord is guiding them through these trials so that the Savior himself can use these symbols, I think is amazing, right? Somewhere in between this time of day 30 and day 45 or whatever, they're still in the same place where the water is coming out of the rock is when they get their first attack by the Bedouins. And I wonder if the Amalekites came because of the water. 
Are they, you know, they know everyone I'm sure in the in the Sinai Peninsula realizes that this enormous group of people is coming through and they probably have heard that they're just passing through. They're not going to stay. They're trying to get up north to the Canaan. But whatever their motivation was, they attack. And the Amalekites become a cause of death throughout the Old Testament. And there are so many times when the Amalekites are attacking them. You know, we, we first read about them back in they're the people that initially attack Lot and his family, that Abraham has to go back and challenge. There's other people named Amalek. I think it's in part the initials. You know, Remember, there's no vowels in early Hebrew. Right. And so MLK is king, Melchizedek, Melech, you know, MLK. And so the name may represent different people. It may not always be the same people. And I want to leave that open as well. We may not be talking about the same people at all. But the battle here is what I'm trying to get to. And wow, does this have symbolism for our Savior? As Moses stands up and raises that rod and his arm as a representative of God's power, because we're in this, they're in this valley where death is just destroying them. And then the prophet figure is able to use the help of teamwork. And symbolically, I think it's very significant that the people that he chooses to hold up his arms, Aaron represents the Aaronic priesthood. And biblical scholars like Legrand Davies have suggested that her is one who held the Melchizedek priesthood. And we do know that there were those that held the higher order. Joshua was one who did. But Aaron and her are supporting the Moses. And just in your image of your eye, you can see Moses on this mountaintop raising both arms up as if he is our Savior, raising his arms up on the cross and Moses is overcoming the battle of death, and Christ overcomes the battle of the dead ones. I'm thinking of Isaiah, oh, death, where is thy sting? You know, this beautiful image of, and how does our Savior accomplish the bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man? It is through God's power. It is through his Father's power. It is through his righteousness, and the power of God is another word for priesthood. So we have this beautiful support of the priesthood sustaining our Savior over the battle with death. And, oh, I just think this battle is one of my favorite symbols of our Savior as we talk about this exodus cycle as types of Christ and types that we also have to go through in our own lives as we, too, will face death at some point and hopefully receive our Savior's help through that process As we know, we will all be resurrected, but only those who receive the atoning sacrifice will receive immortality or eternal life, excuse me. Yeah, you know, putting all these together, kind of going from 14, 15, 16, 17 so far, this theme is showing up in my mind of, you know, here's the different miracles. And I'm thinking about how I'm liking this to my own life. And obviously the symbolism, you know, there's suffering. I'm leaving the world, the comforts of the world, the slavery even, right, of these kind of creature comforts, if you will. Someone kind of telling me what to do for the high cost of freedom and independence, which is you're going to work. You know, there's some work to do, right? You know, we mentioned the sweat of the brow. All the way through, you know, we, we just got through literally a few verses before this miracle of the water and, you know, you know, spiritual renewal even. And they're murmuring. And then and then we have this really antagonistic battle. It's not only about the elements. It's about fighting you know, very real enemies. And the Savior in all of his different symbols delivers. Delivers us constantly. Oh, right? John, that is beautiful. 
He is our deliverer. This step these back. All these look at these stories with broader views. All deliverers. And we see the same thing in 19. I see 19 as our Savior delivering a new priesthood. A 19 is sort of an initiation of the priesthood. You know, he tries to give them the higher law. They're not ready for it. They have this beautiful, they, they arrive at Sinai. So we're now to the Pentecost. We're now at the Feast of the Weeks of Weeks, which will later be represented as the time when Moses receives the law in chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments. But So, so in, sorry, just in chapter 19, we're now at the base of Sinai. Yeah, they're at the base of Sinai. They're there. And so it's been this week of weeks. It's seven days of seven days. So it's been 49 days. Well, actually, it's probably only before that because the Lord has them sanctify themselves for a week in chapter 19. And you see right there at the very beginning, on this day, chapter 19, verse 1, this beautiful means at last, this is the day. We're finally back here. You know, we've been we've been walking for this whole time, and the Lord has promised us that we can, if we get back, he'll show himself unto us. And it's their third month, so it's getting hotter. It's probably early June or very late May. And they are going to celebrate this week. I love in verse 5 where the Savior tells Moses, I want to make this kingdom of priests. I want a holy nation. You know, I want all of them to come up the mountain and receive my law. And that's not what happens. But that's what the hope was, is that all of them would be able to do that. And he starts this sanctification physically and spiritually. The Lord knows us quite well. Yeah. He knew them quite well. And so I was like, well, why offer this higher law when they know they're kind of messing it up, right? <laughs> well, I think he had hoped that they would they would catch on, you know, that yeah, they would learn I, it. I think I think there's two things here. One is obviously to give them the chance so that there's a consequence there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But also, two, I think it really is to prepare the way of when course. the Savior comes. It's like, you know, this is, it's taken some time for us to get to here. To get there. Of course it is. And, and now we're here. Yeah. But it is our choice. The people of Enoch did it. I love verse four and five of chapter 19. I bear you on Ingle's wings and brought you unto myself. I mean, can't you just see that imagery of the Savior bringing us to this new place? And then in five, if you will obey my voice, it's sort of an if then it's, a, right. you know, here's the consequences of it. If you will obey my voice and indeed keep my covenant, then you shall be a, now in King James, peculiar treasure unto me above all people. But that is really more of the root of pecuniary. It's more of, I have bought you back. I have paid for you. So you have been paid for. I have redeemed you. I have saved you. So you now will serve me. And there is no doubt. I mean, oh, it's, not, it's not just one miracle. But it's I just feel it's like a it's series so of miracles. We, we sort of avoid any talk of slavery in our nation, in our generation. But the Lord says, no, I bought you with my blood, and I want you now to serve me. Because if you serve me, it will be a benefit to you and the whole world. So rather than reading that verse as a peculiar treasure, I really like you are God's treasured possession. God worked very hard to pay for you. And now we need to become a sanctified people. This is verse 10. No, no, no. We got to go back to verse eight because the people answer. Do you see this in verse well, eight? I'm, I'm looking at verse five. Okay. I already read five. Yeah. yeah five so and six. I already did. Yeah. So verse eight is where he goes on and he says, all the people answered, all the Lord had spoken. We will do. And so Moses returns to the people. So Moses, 80 years old, climbs back up this beautiful mountain. And it's just such a perfect image of a temple, isn't it? The mountain it has the base there and then going up to the heavens. And then he wants to sanctify the people in verse 10. 
sanctify them, wash their clothes, and get ready, this is verse 11, for the third day. You know, he's setting up this great teaching moment. Hang in there till the third day. Be purified. Don't touch death. Get ready for this third day. And the imagery is not given here of what this washing is supposed to be, that they're going to have to wash their clothes and don't touch anything that's unclean. But in the Book of Mormon, we get it all over the place. Alma 5, Alma 7, Alma 13. We are to cleanse ourselves in the blood of the Lamb. We are to be purified. Our garments are to be purified through repentance, through forgiveness, through our changing of our hearts. And then this great third day arrives in verse 16, and the mountains thundering and the clouds there, and Sinai is smoking in verse 18, it's quaking. In verse 19, there's trumpets being blown and God is speaking. And Moses, I just feel like, talk about a teaching <laughs> moment. This is just fabulous. And the Lord calls Moses to the top in verse 20. And the priests come halfway, just like in all temple symbolisms, you have separate space for different sanctifications. And Moses is prepared. He is worthy to enter into the place of the Lord, and he does. And um, But the Lord also calls up Aaron. This is verse 24. All the priests are come there, and at that point, they are not worthy enough, don't break through, but later on, all those priests do see the Lord. And this takes us to the Ten Commandments, and I'm fascinated that these are repeated many times throughout the Torah. This is our first repetition of them, and we know from the Joseph Smith translation that actually a higher law was given. These were not given here, but it's such a beautiful code that the entire world can base their civil obedience, their civil governments on the basis of many of these laws that the Lord has provided for us. It's really empowering to see them. Have you ever looked at the Ten Commandments? Have you got it memorized? Do you have it memorized? <laughs> Once upon a time. Yeah? yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll give you one minute. One minute. Here you go. One, one minute. One. One God. Two. Right. Zoo. Zoos have graven images. A lot of animals. Yeah, okay. Animals are used to like graven that. images. Three trees. Trees have veins or leaves. Leaves have veins. Okay. Thou shalt not take the Lord thy name in vain. Four. This one's silly. Fort. Forts have holes. Keep the Sabbath day holy. <laughs> so those first four are all about loving God, how to serve God, and how to worship God, how to have obedience to God. And the next are all about serving our neighbor, which are also serving God. And the closest neighbors are in our family. Number five, five family, honor your father and mother. Right. Six sticks. Thou shalt not kill. Seven heaven. This is a little bit harder for me to understand. I mean, I just had to make this one up for my kids. I didn't want to go into details. I just said seven heaven. You can't get to heaven if you commit sexual sins or so <laughs> commit adultery. But the word adultery is limited. Um, it's really any breaking of the law of chastity, any immorality of all, any kind. Seven heaven. You can't get to heaven breaking the law of chastity. Eight gate. Gates are made out of steel. Thou shalt not steal. Nine, line, don't lie, don't bear false witness. Ten, tent, tents are coverings. So there's lots of ways to memorize them. I like John Hilton III's too. He's going to share it on Book of Mormon video. But <laughs> for me, being able to see that these laws are divided into loving God and loving our neighbors. And then as we look at the entire corpus of 613 commandments in the Torah, later on they numbered them. They didn't number them initially. That was at the time, after the time of the New Testament, they came up with that number. But that, when we look at Christ said, out of all of those, there's two main ones, loving God and loving your neighbor. 
And that's exactly what we see even in the Ten Commandments. Just divide them up, loving God and loving your neighbor. And you know, the Book of Mormon mentions the Ten Commandments too. Abinadi goes through almost all of them in that sermon. And even though they never give us a list like we have here exactly, Abinadi is about as close as we get there in Mosiah 12 before King Noah's court when he's saying, you guys aren't even living the basics. And he quotes Isaiah and many of these verses here. Anyway, Jesus' Sermon on the Temple, I guess, also brings up these when he says, it has been said of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, he who looketh upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery So in even, his even heart. the higher law builds on the scaffolding. I think so. I, I think, think this so. is the scaffolding. I, oh, what a good word, John. I love it. Yeah. yeah. This is the scaffolding. Yep. As Paul says, it's our schoolmaster, our tutor. A tutor. I, yeah. I'd like to say something about that because because there's this, uh, especially in modern day revelation, we, we have a lot of, I would say, confrontation with with existing, like it's dogma, right? Because no new rules, right? No yeah. new no new prophecy. And that that's tough. But you know, because, in, and I understand the thinking behind it, like in the Lord, this is from the mouth of the Lord as, as we understand it and know it. But the way that the Lord has set up these commandments, right? These are new at the time. And the way he is leading, you know, the, uh, I'm still thinking about through, okay, coming out of Egypt, yes. really in the space of a couple of months, all this stuff happens, oh, yes. right? Yes. It's like 50 days. This is the Pentecost. <laughs> this is the first Pentecost. Yeah. What a couple of months, right? Yeah. For, yeah. for an entire community to suffer. But you see the hand of the Lord. And Christ becomes the Moses on a mount giving a new law on the Sermon on the Mount. It's paralleling this sermon. But it's building on this, you know, like the law has been fulfilled. This had a purpose and a time. And it's not wrong. You know, time has come to live a higher law. And so I I love just, it's one of these things where sometimes you look back and just see the wisdom. Oh, yes. Of our Savior plan and how delicate and beautiful it is. I'm glad, though, that you were looking at it from the modern day when you just said in our day and age, because things like idolatry, you know, most of us aren't bowing down to images of stone, and yet materialism? Right. And where do you put your time and your money? I mean, most of us are worshiping our phones, whether or not we realize it, or are worshiping our internet or whatever, you know. Where are we spending our energy? Where are we spending our free time? I think it's very clear that well, we are What are we ambitious lived, towards? Right? Yeah, where, what are you striving to do? We really need to apply these laws in our life, not only because pornography is so rampant and materialism is just invasive, but the Sabbath day we have completely lost that not only is it a day of rest, but it's a day of worship. We are to do the Lord's will, not our will. This is not a day of sports, of, you know, this is a day where we serve our God. And if he has asked us to serve him by attending our church meetings and by blessing those around us and refraining from many things, let us go back to these beautiful laws and look at them in our own lives. I really feel like they are so applicable in our lives going down even to the bearing of the false witness, our characters. It's so much a part of what we need still. I'm curious, how, how often do you think it would be healthy to reread these Ten Commandments? Well, i got to memorize, so I say them all the time <laughs> to myself. Yeah, I, 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 totally, I do a decent job of reading the rest of the scriptures. Like, how often do reading. I reread these? Like, oh, yeah. once, it, once every couple of years when it's assigned? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, at least every four years, but hopefully a lot sooner than that. And I also love the fact that next year in the New Testament, when the higher law is given, and then in the Book of Mormon, when the higher law is given, we are again given the opportunity to see them in Christ's eyes as we get as you said, scaffolding with the higher point. 
And that's the blessing of having the Book of Mormon. And I guess I should probably go through the Doctrine and Covenants and look for the Ten Commandments. I haven't done that yet to see where they are and see if we see it. So that way we would be rereading the Ten Commandments every year in our scripture study. But the Decalogue is not only important for Christians and Jews and members of the Islamic faith, it is the foundation of the civil code of law and order. Even though other people's laws are different, this is the first covenant code of a people that is known of in the written records of the annals of history. I think it has a very significant parallel to the legal system because, of course, they did not separate church and state. This was their legal system. Right. Extremely powerful. And And it comes even more significant as we look at it, I think, in light of our beautiful symbolism to our Savior. And we can bow our knees as we see him overcoming these battles and providing our nourishment and providing our living water. And our challenge is now to not murmur, but to climb the mount and to enter into his presence and to go through this sanctification process to become, as it says in verse six, a kingdom of priests. And I'll add priestesses to be this holy nation. I feel like our responsibility is to prepare for the Lord's second coming. We have got to apply these to our heart, hands and feet. Yeah. Thank you so much. Amen. Good to be with you. Thank you. See you next week for Easter. Yes.